You're listening to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast. We're the business development resource for group practice owners, where we talk candidly about business ownership and leadership. From practice building tips to live coaching to real talk episodes with other group practice owners, we're the resource you've been looking for to help you grow your group practice. I'm your host, group practice owner and entrepreneur, Maureen Werbach. This episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is an online EHR, practice management, and billing software designed for mental health professionals. Therapy Notes has everything you need to manage patient records, schedule appointments, create rich documentation, and bill insurance right at your fingertips. They offer free and unlimited live support seven days a week. Their streamlined software is accessible wherever and whenever you need it. To get two free months, go to www.therapynotes.com forward slash r forward slash the group practice exchange. Need a new accountant or bookkeeper? Meet Green Oak Accounting, an accounting firm that works specifically with private practices. They do all of your accounting needs from budgeting to accounting to bookkeeping and payroll to building your dashboard. On top of that, they can help you set up your profit first systems. Go to greenoakaccounting.com and mention the group practice exchange for $100 off your first month. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. Today, I've got Amanda Patterson um, with me. She is a fellow group practice owner out in Florida, and we're going to be talking about how to scale from around the $500,000 mark to getting to to the seven-figure mark and what kind of infrastructure and things you need to have in place to, to get there. So hi, Amanda. How are you? Hi, Maureen. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about your practice. I know you and I talked for a few minutes beforehand, but for those listening, give us a little background on your practice and where it's at and the size and all that fun stuff. So I'm in South Florida. I've got two locations, one in Davie, Florida, which is in Broward County, which is probably about 40 minutes north of Miami. And then I've got a location in Wellington, Florida, which is about 20 minutes west of West Palm Beach. And it is a an insurance-based and private pay-based practice, a little bit of um, both, but mostly an insurance-based practice. We have 15 clinicians between the two locations. And we're thinking about expanding uh, in the Wellington office, in our North office. Our South office has six offices and the North office has two offices. Okay. So what is making you think about um, kind of the seven figure mark as like a, a benchmark for you? So I'm like a visual person. So I think as I started to see the numbers rise, like when I first moved into the larger space down in Broward, we had this number that we needed to reach in order to really afford the office and afford everything that went along with it. And then like we hit it the first month, we moved into the office. And then, you know, our income has just been rising month to month. And then a year later, between the two offices, we've more than doubled that amount. So it's just been like fun to watch that. And and as I'm thinking about, okay, I, this is doable now, right? Like now that I can see the numbers, it I realize like there are s- some infrastructure things that I need in place in order to get there. Yeah. I was going to say, um, in reading your application for, for this, uh, episode, 
um, the seven figure mark. And um, one of the things that I was thinking about was with Mike McAllowitz and how he talks about numbers and, and making, you know, goals around making sure that they're not arbitrary. And I was like, I wonder if um, where, how many clinicians she has because you mentioned infrastructure, which I thought was interesting because I don't think a lot of people talk about infrastructure when they think about growing. Um, they think mainly about like, what do I need to do to get to seven figures? And your question had the piece on infrastructure in there. So it's interesting that you say that you have around 15 therapists. Because I was thinking, I bet you she's like somewhere between 10 and 20 therapists that, um, that she's asking this question. Because I feel like one of the things that was going to be my suggestion and that I'll talk about here is um, is that infrastructure would need to be in place to ever get to like a seven figure scaled group practice. There's obviously ways to get to seven figures staying at the size that you're at, whether that's increasing prices, diversifying services, um, not necessarily needing to add more clinicians. Um, but when it comes to adding more clinicians, I found that it was somewhere around the the 20 therapist mark for me. And it seems like when I talk to a, other large group practice owners, um, they all have a very similar story that they tell, um, whether it's around 15, 20 or 25, but right around that mark where they realize that um, they need to put a specific sort of infrastructure in place. And, and what it is, is putting together teams, um, which obviously isn't really needed when you're much smaller than that. Um, and so it's interesting that you were saying you're at 15 people. Cause I was like, I bet you she's right around that mark. <laughs> um, and so that would be my, my biggest suggestion. I found that my ability to scale was much easier and, um, much more streamlined when I put in, um, teams in place. And so that can look different for everyone. For, for me, I have a leadership team because I have multiple locations and you do too. So it might make sense to have, uh, think about a leadership team. Um, for, for me, how that looks, I have a clinical director that sort of manages all the locations. And then we have um, site supervisors, one at each location, and they manage all the clinicians at that site. And my clinical director um, kind of leads that leadership team. So, um, And then obviously having an administrative team. Um, and this is something I did actually probably within the past year or so, and it's made such a big difference. What kind of admin do you have? I'm assuming you'd have some sort of admins. So I have a full-time phone person and then I have an office manager slash biller. Okay. And that was similar to where I was literally until about um, a year ago. I had a full-time person who did the phones. And then um, my mom, who everyone knows does our billing, is our practice manager. She makes sure all the money is in order. Um, she's part-time. And that was all I had. So one full-time, one part So like 60-ish hours. Uh, of of work administratively. And last year, um, I realized that we were sort of stunted in, we were continuing to grow, but I felt like it was just a harder process than it needed to be. Um, and we took the leap and hired, we have now one, two, three, almost four full-time people altogether. So we have one full-time phone person one part-time person who does 20 hours just doing benefit checks and communicating benefit checks to clients. Um, one person who just does uh, around 20 hours of submitting claims and rectifying claims. And then uh, my mom who just oversees them and makes sure that if they have any, if they need any help, like if there's, 
like with COVID hitting, we had a lot of teletherapy problems and, and insurance claims that just weren't paying out. So then she was able to jump in. And then we have a full-time um, admin who supports both the phone person when the phones get heavy and um, the back end. And what we ha- did was as we rolled each person in, we trained each of them to be able to support and know the, uh, the other person's uh, role. And what that did was what we noticed was, you know, admin come and go, um, just as everyone, you know, all, all kind of job types do. But what would happen was my clinical director, I would have to go back to answering the phones or my mom would have to go back to, you know, doing almost full-time work if a billing person left. And so what was nice was they all learned how to do, do each other's role, which took me and my clinical director out of ever having to be a part of that. So I've said this before, but we've had, we probably have around 20 hours of extra work a week that technically we don't need. Like between all of the people, there's around 20 hours of, of extra time. But what we found was um, that that time allowed us to actually tighten up some systems. Um, we never have documentation issues because we have enough admin and admin time that they're not busting their butt like answering every phone call that they don't have any extra time. They now are able to um, look through every day. Part of their, one of one of their, their jobs is to check the previous day's clients and make sure that all their credit card on file is up to date, that any release of informations are up to date, all that kind of stuff. So it even goes above and beyond, which I think is really important for scaling. Cause as, as you know, at 15, it's, uh, it can be a big headache compared to having two clinicians if yeah. they're behind on notes or if they don't have credit cards on file. Um, and that just like exacerbates as you get to 20, 25, 30 clinicians. So my biggest feedback for just getting to the the size that you're kind of talking about is, is having um, teams in place that can support each other so that you can kind of do what you need to do. So I have a question about the clinical director and maybe the site supervisors in terms, because I have independent contractors, so we do a split. Like I'm I'm kind of stuck around how to pay them, like, and how to to know like how many hours to allot and um, those types of things. Um, so I will say when it comes to leadership, if you have clinical directors, um, I would look at in what ways you can lead. And I know every state is a little bit different in terms of whether they're more stringent than the IRS guidelines or less. Um, so I, I check with an attorney in term, in that, uh, regard, but is that what I'm thinking is obviously the level of supervision that, you know, my practice is doing, you wouldn't be able to do with, um, independent contractors like mine are, you know, doing, audits and and supervision. And we sometimes have provisionally licensed people that they're supporting. Um, So it's a little bit different in that sense. And we have a lot of team meetings and just because our our feel is a a family feel. So there's a lot of connection um, just because that's possible as with employees. So my question in terms of leadership is what would you be wanting before I, I guess go too deep with your contractors when it comes to leadership? Support. So I, I'm definitely thinking about having a clinical director because I'm an hour away from my one location and I've been going there three days a week and that um, I would like to stop. It's a little far. And, you know, some of our other goals and plans. And then my other office is eight minutes away. So I'm looking to shift my home base. 
And there's just, you know, things that come up down in that office that because it's a larger office, there's more clinicians, there more, there's more going on that I think that the clinical director just would need to support, even if it's just things like, you know, a lot of the times people forget the fax number or forget how to log into the fax number, just like some of those smaller things and the larger things like the team meetings and the audits and that kind of stuff. Okay. So your question is around payment, compensate yeah, payment. Like how do I compensate that person? Um, well, first I'll say you probably want to check and see if you can have a contractor at, in that position. It's likely okay. probably going to have to shift at least that specific role. That's in, what I was thinking into an employee. Yes. Yeah. Only because you're really going to want to direct how they're leading the team. Um, and obviously that puts some level of control in your hands. Um, that being said, most people in our industry start off by, um, are you, you're paying, you said commission, right? Yes. Um, is that they have a separate rate that they're paying for leadership. So that's how I started. Um, it's, it's lower risk and it's easier to keep things separate. So one of the things that I, um, don't suggest, which is something that I did do, um, <laughs> and the lesson that I, I learned in, um, a large group practice owner here in Chicago, who's since sold her practice, um, had given me this feedback and it was a kind of a lesson learned on my end um, years ago is that if you pay your leadership team or if you pay, I mean, anyone who's commission-based for seeing clients and just pay them a higher commission, which is something I did. I initially paid my clinical director, we were 55% and I think I did like 65%, right? With the assumption that she's going to do X amount of hours of leadership. And this was I mean, she's been a clinical director for, I don't know, seven or eight years now. So it was in that first year or so that I was like, I'll just do a higher commission. And what that really does is it um, it incentivizes seeing more clients, not doing the leadership work, right? Because and it, it, with time, it, it, the, it's just part of how we are thinking is that um, someone who gets paid a higher commission will just tie the commission to the clinical work and feel like they're not being paid, even though in theory, they are, they're going to feel like they're not being paid for the clinical work. So um, it really incentivized her to work a lot of client hours, which then made me feel um, bad having her giving her more work on the clinical side, because I knew how many clients she was seeing. And so we we shifted out of that probably a year into it. And after talking with this other group practice owner who had, you know, um, been around the block a few times uh, with this and said that it makes the most amount of sense to separate the pay. So we went back to paying uh, her regular clinical rate for seeing clients just just as she does, just as everyone else in my practice has. And then I paid her an hourly um, rate of like, I can't even remember now because it's she's salaried now, but of probably I did, I so my my goal was it to be a higher rate than what she makes seeing clients because I felt like the leadership role obviously is a higher role than being a clinician and, and it has more responsibility. So I wanted that to the compensation to be higher. So I think um, at the time, because again, this was a lot of years ago, um, I did around $10 more an hour than what kind of the combination of her commission was for an hourly rate um, and, and then set that up for her um, as, a, as a clinical director. And at the time we knew because we kind of practiced it. So I knew what I was giving up time-wise. And I, at the, at the time, I think it was like literally 
again, I had her become a clinical director when I had three people. She was one of three. I already knew from the beginning I wanted the support. So I know it's a little different for you. You're bringing someone in when you already have 15 people or you're bringing someone up. Um, But I would think about the time that you're spending on that and just have like a month or two of grace period and then where you meet back up. So my suggestion is let's say it's, you know, takes you around 10 hours a week or five hours a week of whatever leadership stuff that you're doing that you're going to hand off. I would start with that. And how I set up was I did a a monthly package. Like I paid, you know, uh, $2,000 a month and it came out to the $65 or whatever it was an hour times 10 hours a week times four, right. To just do a monthly package. And I asked her to track her time. And sometimes she was a little bit lower, but because I was doing a monthly package like that for the um, supervisor hours, um, she was still getting it, even if she was a little lower and even if she was a little higher, um, we obviously accounted for um, um, minimum wage, but her pay was higher than a clinical wage. So there wasn't any worry on that end. And then after a couple of months, we uh, redefined the the timeframes because we were able to see, you know, obviously how I do things and how fast it is for me is different than someone else. Um, and we did that for, I don't know, five or so years. It worked perfect. Uh, it didn't incentivize her to see 8,000 clients and it incentivized her to actually focus on the leadership part as well. Um, and then a couple of years ago, we switched to salary um, because her role is mainly clinical director with just, she just does 10 hours of client facing work a week. Um, that's obviously the easiest route, but it's the most highest risk, even in times like now when, you know, you could potentially have, um, clinicians not seeing a lot of clients, but that would be my, that would be my suggestion. It is the lowest risk, um, but also keeps the role separate enough where um, your soon to be clinical director will be prioritizing both the client facing and the um, leadership facing work. And then as I'm, I'm promoting this person, would you recommend doing site supervisors at the same time or kind of like rolling over her, you know, I say her, but could be a him, but it probably will be a her considering my two male clients are brand new and, um, are clinicians, not clients. And, um, would I bring on site supervisors right away or kind of let it roll out having her see how that goes? I mean, I know it might be a personal preference, but I just, I guess if you're asking what I would do and you can do whatever you want, um, <laughs> is, I probably would roll this position out first because you're going to want to iron out the kinks in terms of what she, you know, to be able to pair out what her role is going to be versus the supervisors, the site supervisors. Um, I think with two locations, one clinical director is is enough to be able to manage all of that. Um, It also allows her then to grow in that leadership place. If you bring on the supervisors, not that you can't do this at the same time, um, there could be this feel like they're kind of growing in leadership at the same time. And, um, you know, obviously the, you want the clinical director to be able to lead the leadership team, but if she's growing in leadership at the same time, she'll feel more like a peer in that regard. Um, again, not that it's a a bad thing, but I think it's something that you'd have to think about, um, in terms of maybe, you know, doing leadership training separately with her so that she feels like she can actually lead the leadership team without feeling like she's learning with them. Um, But again, I think because you're at two locations, um, I brought on site supervisors two years ago, 
when I had brought on my third location, because that's when I felt like she she can't drive around between three office locations. Um, and, and so that was kind of the marker for me was that on top of the fact that I wanted to be able to have um, growth opportunities for my team. So I would say that it it would be easiest for you if you started with just that one and then it'll it'll help you kind of define what you want your site supervisor positions to look like. And then it also offers her the the time to be able to grow in, in leadership first before you bring them on so that she can support you in training those, those new leaders, uh, site supervisors, if you do go that route. Okay. This sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I feel like in terms of infrastructure, if, if that's what you're focusing on is, is the team's leadership and backend, because as, as you know, you know, being insurance based as well is that, um, I'm sure it looks really different now at 15 clinicians than it did when you were at two or three. And the same is going to be true when you get to 20 and 25. One of the things that I, in talking with other large group practice owners that I was mentioning earlier is another piece of it is that every 10 or so new clinicians that get brought on the dynamic, the feel, the struggles of the group practice shift a little bit. Um, and, and you kind of go through these like ebbs and flows. So it also with regards to finances, even, so you might notice that the first five people that you hire, um, there's not much growth, like you're at 15. So I'm talking about now five more and five more and five more. Um, but that between 15 and 20, you might find that there's very minimal amounts of financial growth on your end, um, or profit growth. But then between clinicians 25 and 30, there might be a big spurt. And then you might find that clinicians 30 to 35, there's very small growth again, um, financial growth, profit growth. And then between 35 and 40, there's a spurt again. And it um, accounts for things like this. Like if you're in clinician number 15 and you decide to put in a, a structure in place that includes a more robust administrative team so that they can actually handle that, that growth that's going to come up instead of you know, proactively instead of reactively, and also with a leadership team, it's likely that the first few clinicians you now hire are just going to end up covering the cost of that growth, which is kind of how this kind of goes throughout your future growth um, in, in clinicians is the more clinicians you have, the more administrative and leadership support you need. So kind of, does that make sense? You'll have a few people you hire, it, there won't feel like there's any financial growth, but there's gonna be a lot more um, leadership needs and support needs. And then all of a sudden you'll notice that there's a handful of clinicians you bring on that that's where the profits show up and that'll continue on um, as you grow. And I, I remember thinking that was just something that might be unique to me. And um, in just, you know, this era that we're in where we get to talk to all these group practice owners and, and peers online, um, I've been able to see and, and talk to other kind of larger group practice owners who all had the same experience. So um, makes a lot of sense, but it's something to be aware of, I think, just because it can be initially frustrating. And you might think, uh, you know, I'm doing this growth and I've hired five, six new people and I'm, I feel, you know, financially or profit-wise, not any better off, <laughs> but we have all this extra work that we need to do for those five or six people. Um, it's just normal. And that's just part of the, the, growth, the growth piece. And in terms of like the percentage, like I've been doing a, the same percentage for this whole time, what do you recommend normally the, the split be for when you have independent contractors? Yeah. 
I, I'll say across all of the, the U.S., the standard for contractors seems to be 60%. That's kind of industry standard and for, for employees is 50%. Um, and I'll, I'll say, and this is for therapists. So I know if you have med management, it's going to look a little different. But for, for therapists, psychologists, counselors, social workers, that the this industry standard is 60% for contractors and 50 for employees um, with people wavering around 5% above and below that point. So um, there's obviously group practices that have employees at 45% up to 55%. That's I'm at 55% with benefits. And there's uh, contract uh, group practices that have contractors that pay contractors between I've even seen 50%. So I guess with contractors, the, the spread is a little wider, but the standard is 60, but I've seen it all the way up to 65%. Um, I find that the larger you get, the easier it is to um, pay a little bit more. And that's, uh, I think, you know, something that I see struggles with smaller group practices that I coach is that they feel like they can't compete benefits wise with larger group practices. And this is one of those reasons is that, um, you know, typically as a group, as any business grows, the profit percentage goes down in what the business makes. But because, you know, the even if the profit percentage goes down because the amount of income that's coming in is so much larger, the profit number is still much higher. Um, and so there's a little bit more flexibility in being able to, you know, increase uh, compensation or add benefits if you had employees. I know there's not many benefits you can do with contractors. So typically it would be increasing the actual compensation. Um, but I wouldn't suggest doing it unless you feel like you're not doing the industry standard or you feel like the, the rates that your clients are paying are such a rate and your operating expenses are so low that your profit numbers are just higher than where like the average group practice is at. So my, my, my rate is higher than the industry standard. And the other issue around that is that in Florida, like our private pay rate is decent, but for the most part, our insurance rate is pretty low. And yeah. so if I even consider doing maybe 60% initially, it's really not comparable and competitive with working at an agency or, you know, people who just want to do private pay practices. Yep. So we've recently got some raises from some insurances. So that has been really helpful and we're pushing, but you know, some of the like Blue Cross and Blue Shield, I think, as you know, will not negotiate with most, you know, practices and they have a very low rate where even at 60%, it would be like 36, you know, dollars or 30, you know, $35 or whatever it is. And so it, you know, that's not, and then when the, the contractor has to pay taxes on top of that and those kinds of things, it's just not really sustainable. But at the same time, what, what I'm learning is that if I want to grow and have a clinical director and have more admin staff, that the rate that I have, unless everybody's full, then it's not really allowing me to do that. So I feel a little bit stuck between those two things because I feel like the contractors are happy with their rate, but in order to provide more admin staff or even a clinical director that it's, I'm, I'm sort of stuck between those two things. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you have a, a, a couple of options? One is that you bring on someone this is sort of similar to what I did with my clinical director in the beginning is I brought her on and had her do very minimal amount of, of work, just a few hours a week. 
until as my group grew and I had enough profits to be able to support her to do more. And, and for me, I found it, I, I, I liked that option because I didn't have to jump head in and just bring some, her on full time as, as a clinical director or even part time. I mean, she was a super part time in the clinical director role. It allowed her to ease into it. And, you know, for most people, just the ability to, um, to be promoted is, is enough. I know a lot of people think, you know, who's going to want to be a clinical director for a couple of hours. Again, it's a promotion with the, you know, idea that as the group practice grows, so would her position. And so 99% of people are going to be excited that they are being asked for that sort of opportunity and are going to, are going to be willing to grow and um, partially mold that position with you. Um, so one option is to continue to grow and every extra clinician you bring on, if you, if you don't reduce, let's say you don't reduce anyone's rates, um, allows you to have a slightly more profits to cover her, her cost in growing or two, you can bring on any new person you bring on is just at a different rate. Um, and you, you know, they don't need to know, you know, and if they, are, if they do find out, you can always say if like, for whatever reason they talk, you can say, there was a point where we uh, added administrative people to support this growth, including supporting you not needing to do X, Y, and Z. And in that, we need to we needed to these people were grandfathered into a rate, and that's the way it is. I mean, it's just the way it is. Um, and then the other option is maybe diversifying services within your practice and looking at. So this is something that we're we're we've been doing for the past year. It's just taking a really long time. Is um, offering what we're doing. This is just an example um, is offering CEs. So we have like a training program where my clinicians actually can get paid more than their hourly rate seeing clients. But I know that I'm kind of decent at um, selling courses and stuff. So my thought was I can pay my clinicians $200 an hour to make a, make a, an hourly CE on their area of expertise. And then, and so they're being paid more than they would at, you know, ours are around $65 an hour for seeing uh, clients. So a whole lot more. Uh, and then it's up to me, obviously, and this is a whole nother business venture. So, um, you know, it's going to take me probably a year or so to actually um, see profits from it. But then, I, you know, I potentially, how I have it set up is I have a whole, um, CE course area. And then I have one that's for businesses. Um, so like leadership, conflict resolution, so non-CE, but corporate sort of trainings. Um, it diversifies services. And obviously the level of profits is up to me, right? If I can um, get in front of a lot of corporate clients and sell these and license them, um, then the $200 that I paid the clinician for that hour of a webinar training or whatever could be I mean, the profits can be however high they can, you know, I can get them to get. So my, I guess, long story short in this is there's a potential for you if you, if those other two options don't work is um, maybe adding a different service that is in line with your business, that makes sense, is part of your vision, um, and that allows for you to have higher profits so that um, you can support things like this, leadership teams and such. Yeah, and I think one thing that we've uh, talked about a lot is doing groups. That's been a, an area that we I just haven't done anything yet with it. But 
there's definitely, I think, interest one in the community and two, some of the clinicians are really interested in doing the doing groups, which can, yeah. you know, in line with what we do already. Yeah. And then if, if, it, if it fits with your vision and what your group practice is about, then that makes sense. I talked to, you know, Katie May, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, talk to her because she's the, the person that can help you do that. Um, groups, I cannot, for the life of me, is not my strong suit. So, uh, but I, I think that's a, a good option in terms of being able to, in, you know, increase profits without necessarily reducing clinician pay. But obviously, that is, I'll say the last option is, you know, going back to client. I've seen so many group practices that have to do this. So um, it's not, you know, it's not a fun discussion to have, but it's not something that's unheard of or not, you know, not been done before is, is reducing their pay by 5% or whatever. And, um, and just saying that this, you know, this is part of the growing pains of a business ownership is, you know, over delivering or over giving and not, that's not being a sustainable method for how your practice is run. Um, I don't know. When I when I think about that, I always think, what what are my other options? I always look at that as like the last resort. If I can bring on new people at a, at a lower rate, uh, knowing now I'm kind of course correcting, I would probably prefer to do that. Um, or offering diversifying services, whether that's through speaking engagements um, in, in, in the community or offering continuing education or things like that, where you can have a larger profit margin that can kind of offset sometimes the really good pay you're giving your clinicians. <laughs> so that, that's one of the things I'm thinking about. Yeah. But I've considered, um, I don't want to, I don't think anybody ever wants to reduce pay, but I've also thought about reducing pay like for part-time people who, you know, it, it just, they, they want a space and they maybe, you know, contribute some, but they're not full-time and it just doesn't necessarily make sense to pay them you know, the same rate as full-time clinicians. So that's also been something I've seen people do. Um, and, uh, and I, I think, yes, of course, like that's a last, for me and my business, like that's a last resort. Um, but it's just, it is like a funny spot to be in sometimes where you want to grow and then you, you know, also need money to grow. And then you also, you know, it's like what comes first, yeah. the chicken or the egg sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when are you planning on growing? Well, <laughs> I was planning on growing the week that um, the pandemic hit. So I'm not uh, now we're not sure. I'm going to try to do like a hybrid system where half online, half in person when this all fully goes, you know, rolls out. And so I don't know that I'll need a larger space up here yet. But I just added two clinicians. One is getting full and the other one just literally started um, last week. So we'll see where that goes. But when we all try to go back into the space, there's it's there's not going to be enough space. We'll have to work it out amongst ourselves, which we can. But I will probably need a larger space, I would say, by August or September. Again, it's so hard to know what's going right. on because everything is so up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to see the decisions that businesses, especially, you know, group practice owners are, are making. Um, and it's so far reaching between the two uh, ends of the spectrum from group practice owners that are closing locations to ones that are expanding right now and opening locations. So it's interesting to see. Um, and it's kind of this is what is the fun piece for me is just observing how different we can all run our businesses and how successful we can be doing it so differently, which is, I think, pretty cool. 
Yeah, I agree. I've, I've seen people like on, on both ends, they're like closing their business. And I'm like, my goodness, like I, that's a, definitely like a scary place to be, but we're lucky. Like our referrals have picked up, especially in the last two weeks. Same. Referrals have picked up. I put the AdWords back on and uh, started, you know, ramping up some of, of the efforts to drum up referrals. And we've seen that's been good. So that's why this is like the perfect timing for this uh, coaching call because I'm starting to see like the light at the end of the tunnel. We're going to go back to the office. Eventually things are going to continue to build. I'm going to need a larger space. I could add additional clinicians and um, I know I need the support. Yeah. And I I wanted to sort of end with this, but I I think not only does looking at teams and, and I didn't actually even finish my thought before because I sometimes go on tangents, but including in the teams is looking at things like marketing. Um, you, you could potentially have clinicians, uh, a team, or it can be a single person team with you. Um, some of my teams are just me with another person, uh, marketing team, onboarding team, someone that supports onboarding new clinicians. We have that. And that's a lifesaver for me. It's one of my um, superstar therapists who just is amazing at everything she does. And it's like, Oh, if we could replicate you, if you have a clinician who you think, if I could just replicate you a hundred times and have a hundred versions of you as a clinician, that's probably the perfect onboarding coordinator. Um, And that's what I thought of with, with my one therapist is she just does her notes on time. She has a good system. She charges cards at the beginning of a set, like the things that she's just so on top of it and, and has helped mold all the new therapists that come in um, are, are essentially learning exactly what I'm wanting out of, you know, upcoming clinicians. So it's really great. Um, but in doing this, I think it also does a second benefit aside from supporting you and allowing you to be able to focus on the growth part is that it really provides all these opportunities to your clinicians, which I think group practice owners don't think about because they feel like they're, that the limit is, I hire a clinician and then they're a clinician. That's it. Um, and that breeds uh, people coming and going and starting their own thing or finding a place where they can continue to grow. And so I find that the second benefit to it is that you're, you'd be able to provide opportunity to, opportunities of growth for clinicians in your practice or, you know, administrative people in your practice to be able to, you know, kind of step into a role that they might not otherwise be able to have, which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah, I definitely think that keeps people engaged in the practice and excited about their practice and then less likely to leave, let's call it. Yeah, I agree. Um, Do you have any other questions? Um, I have one more question. Who actually pays your clinicians? Like who reviews their timesheets? Who reviews the, you know, we use therapy notes. I think you do too. Like who reviews that to make sure everything is done. And because I'm still doing that and I know I need, I know I saw you shake your head. Like I know that has to go to somebody, but who does that? So mine is the practice manager, my mom. Okay. Person who does all of the, the money related stuff. Um, it, I would assume in most businesses in our industry, it's it's going to be a practice manager of sorts that's doing it. Uh, if it's not the group practice owner, um, it only it just makes the most amount of sense is having someone. You could also so I know I use Green Oak Accounting mm-hmm. for my accounting and bookkeeping, and I have the CFO package, and I, I'm almost positive part of the CFO package is is doing payroll. So there's also accountants out there that 
um, will do that work for you. So it depends. Okay. if you have an accountant or bookkeeper, it'd be worth asking them um, if that's part of their, their scope and being able to do it. Um, I know with mine, it is a part of her scope and she uses Gusto and those therapy notes and all that fun stuff. So um, if I didn't have my mom who has been doing it for a million years now, um, I would definitely have my accountant do it. It just makes the m- most logical sense next to a practice manager who, or someone who's in charge of the administrative side of your business would be then um, an accountant or bookkeeper person doing it. Okay, perfect. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Those are my yeah. questions. <laughs> it was really good talking to you and seeing you sort of face to face. Yes, I know. When we got on, I was like, yes, I see her on Facebook. But like, it's so funny to be familiar with people, right? That you've never really like talked to. Yeah, I know. It's funny when I talk to my husband about um, my online friends, he's like, you're so because he's just he's a teacher. So he's like, not he doesn't technology and needing to meet, you know, I'm just in meetings like this uh, on zoom all the time. Um, So I feel like my most of my connections are now through here so he always laughs and's like you you sound like a you know like the 90s gamer nerd who's like my online friends it's <laughs> really funny i know i i've it's always fun to like meet my online friends in person like going to conferences and things i'm like i know you but i don't like know you know you yeah, it's really I funny know. yeah well, it, was, it was it was nice to finally meet you same uh, thank you talking and not yeah, right? <laughs> out on a computer screen All right. I appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Group Practice Exchange podcast. Like what you heard? Give us five stars on whatever platform you're listening from. Need extra support? Join the Exchange, a membership community just for group practice owners with monthly office hours, live webinars, and a library of trainings ready for you to dive into visit www.members.thegrouppracticeexchange.com forward slash exchange. See you next week.